Feral Revisions, Stumbling Along the Path of Undoing's Investigation, written by Kevin Tucker, read by Kevin Tucker, and published in Black and Green Review, number 5, Winter 2018. Perhaps the time has come to dispose of the notion of wilderness as a zoo, an exalted aesthetic, a captive, exotic landscape, or a storehouse of tomorrow's resources. Wildness is the state against which we assess the virtues of civilization and its correlates, mass society, these fossil fuels, growth-oriented economics, and the technologies of disjunction and pseudo-mastery that temporarily conceal our limitations and lead us to play in a world of virtual reality rather than to live in actual places. Paul Shepard, Traces of an Omnivore You learn a lot about an animal by butchering it. You also learn a lot about yourself. Immediately upon removing its skin, you will be able to see how it died, that is, if it wasn't already apparent. Most of the animals that I have butchered were killed by cars, ambivalent drivers often wanting to stop unless to curse the dead or dying animal for the audacity of hitting them. On multiple occasions, I witnessed or seemingly just barely missed the actual collision. I moved dying animals off the road and sat with them while they passed. I've scared off onlookers who brought morbid curiosity instead of empathy. I've seen fawns watch their mother die from a distance, unable to do anything to change the outcome. The damage was done at the advent of the combustion engine, amplified with the mass production of automobiles and the fate sealed when the road was cut and paved. I felt guilt, sharing these last moments and feeling nothing but rage. is greatly different than the feeling of the hunt. There's a moment during the taking of another being's life when you have passed the point of no return. You and that animal are both in it. There's chase, but there's no mystery. It's a process that is impossible to put into words. Arguably, that's the way it should be. In the case of autoclusions, all of that is gone. There's nothing sacred, nothing shared, no reverence, no respect. There's no magical ability to communicate my anger over uncaring machine operators in the eyes of a dying deer or a raccoon or a possum. The relationship of predator and prey is buried within all of us. It is a part of our wildness, a lurking awareness of what may or may not come. An ability to remain prepared that doesn't require being afraid. The car is a machine. It is a technology of civilization. It is not a living being. It possesses no thoughts. Animals might become aware of its patterns, but its behavior is not predictable. It is driven, and the driver's whims control it. As the light fades to a fog and a dying animal's pupils, there is neither time nor place for explanation. The predator-prey relationship that the driver might possess is lost to the ambiguity of their weaponry. Before you start removing skin, those wounds are most apparent, our own disconnect. I've lent a hand to many former vegans ready to eat meat again. Insofar as it was possible, I found the act of butchering roadkill to be a good entry point. This is an intimate experience with another species, a sacred and instinctive part of our being, yet we are absent from the kill. The reminder of that fact is seeing the impact a car has on a living being. Bruising can begin immediately. Internal bleeding can be endemic. The sheer impact can be enough to end it all. Depending on the surroundings and constraints, often a matter of legality, you can also quickly assess which parts of the body not to remove, to leave for other scavengers. Were organs ruptured? Even without a guide, and certainly without the internet, your nose and eyes are pretty simple tools for assessing the damage. They work well for a reason. Beyond that, you can start to piece together the life this animal has lived, or moments before, was living. Lactating nipples, pregnant bellies, the tiny antlers that are beginning to sprout on the head of a young buck. You can find old wounds that have healed over. You can find the scars that led to the wisdom of elders. 
the contents of the stomach, the state of the liver and lungs. All of this can tell you about the life this animal had, about the niche it had carved out around the world. If it had been raiding cornfields or foraging in a suburban backyard, sitting on the side of the road, instantly tossed into this circumstance, perhaps with a headlamp and trash bags or bins for separating edible meat from usable parts, you can piece together aspects of your own life. If you allow it, roadkill can humble the loftiest of ambitions and philosophical pretexts. When you allow the blade to move instinctively through connective tissues, when you begin to let go of preconceived ideas and just step into the moment, then you can really start to learn. In the end, you'll still be a bloody mess, but it's at least one you can start to understand a bit more intuitively. Allow me to step back a bit, a little before the roadkill at least. My own forays into rewilding started in the same way as most people that I know, hilariously. To be more specific, in the military surplus store. Survival is an ingrained default within civilization. As any good wage slave can tell you, when you live paycheck by paycheck, sooner or later you get the feeling that you might just be taking part in the most unfulfilling hunt. Developing sellable and marketable skills or simply renting your body as labor, survival isn't a philosophical reality. You do what you do to eat today, tomorrow, or the next week. Armed with an upbringing in a technological society, it's easy to start with the tools. Books, weapons, a bevy of cutlery and packable tools, laughably indestructible gear that renders all feeling and senses useless, all that stuff. The trolls who reside on the internet will tell you that rewilding is for overcommitted Cub Scouts. To be fair, sometimes the first go can look that way, but growing pains, right? Even with a laundry list of self-appointed merit badges, it becomes increasingly apparent that survival and living wild are most definitely not the same thing. Outfitted on a budget, but technologically enabled, the horribly dressed offender is ready for the checklist. Mine was great. A verifiable five-year plan. A book nerd since childhood, memorization of field guides was a bedrock. The manuals were to be tackled in the field. Dirt time, if you wanted to sound seasoned. Food, shelter, water. And expand upon techniques related to all three. Prior to YouTube, the hope to tackle primitive skills using manuals, often at that time military manuals, led to some laughable situations. I have photographic evidence of hand drill length spindles being used for a bow drill. You live and learn. You adapt and adopt. You compare notes with friends and horribly mispronounced plant names. Then you wisen up and start to work on it together. The pieces start to come together, slowly. And then things start to make sense, not in a philosophical way, but in an innate way. Rewilding, like its arch nemesis, domestication, is a process. You can't checklist your way through it. There's no award ceremony, no merit badges. It simply is what it is. It's about shedding baggage. It's about removing the narratives of civilizers from your mind, the voices that tell you how to buy food or clothes or flashlights and knives with compasses in the handle to survive. From the dawn of human settlements, the moral of the story is this. You can't do it without us. Without the tribe, the nation, the state, the artificial community of codependence, stunted in our own personal development from harnessing the skills of self-sufficiency and becoming people we want to build a community with rather than those we have to be by proximity. The underpinning of domestication is to take each of us, all born mentally, physically, and psychologically, to be a nomadic hunter-gatherer and turn us into workers, consumers, pieces of the social and technological machinery. Simply put, we are worth nothing if we aren't broken, tame, captive. Being broken is a hard pill to swallow, so we have to take it piecemeal. We need to be constantly reminded of our condition, 
to be told that our value comes from God, capital, or the greater good. It keeps us buying. It keeps us working. It sends kids to school and hands out hall passes to take a piss. It keeps us gorging on calories without sustenance. It keeps us online. It keeps us from feeling the soil beneath our feet. It makes it possible for us to look at the forest and just see the trees. It's one thing to understand philosophically, historically, ecologically, and socially that this process is ongoing, that this is our history and our present, our narrative and our manifested destiny. It is easy to feel rage and anger. It is relatively easy to start seeing cracks in the mist, the infrastructure, and the concrete. It is another thing to feel them. The hatred comes quickly. Early on, it became a want to escape, to find refuge. My partner and I tried to go further and further into the forest, further from the hum of machines and the conveniences of electricity. And the further we went, the louder the ambiance became. The rumble of a distant highway, once acknowledged, is nerve-wracking. There was no asylum here. Other species had learned to cope with the spatial limitations and make the most of it. It was one thing to observe them, but when seen as victims, it's hard to appreciate what they still have. And that makes it impossible to see what we still have. The problem here, from the viewpoint of the domesticator, is that we're still human. We are trained to silence empathy, to turn it into an artistic apathy. Those feelings are suppressed, but they don't die. Yet the consequence of trying to suppress them is that we break and we can break irreparably. Having lost our communities, removed from a real-world social network of people that know you in your day-to-day life, suffering in silence, raised in disdain and disinterest, and processed by bureaucracy and smiling daytime television proselytizing, we turn inwards. Indulgent in our depression or overcompensating through social domination, we inherit patterns of avoidance befitting hierarchical society. That is a place without trust, but a plenitude of self-serving deception. Rewilding is a process because if it isn't, then we just break completely. That the mind paces understanding and partitions revelations is a self-defense mechanism. Evolutionarily speaking, we weren't equipped to cause change capable of expanding beyond our own proverbial vision and reach. More to the point, we didn't evolve for intercontinental ballistic missiles, sweatshops, or instant communication with other humans on the other side of the planet. So when the process of unraveling the virtues of domestication means immediately feeling accountable for the global cost of our own complicity, if your brain isn't pumping the brakes, it might not come back. It is ironic that attuning your senses and awareness to the world we were born a part of can be so jarring, but there's a reason why the domestication process works. It's a totality and it always has been. It redirects our needs and impulses, diverts them through the social machinery, We can learn a lot from books, from history, from social and ecological understanding, but what we're after here is the shifting perceptions. I'm speaking specifically here of what I've been calling radical humility. That is the experience of being humbled by the wild, often by realizing how dumb the things you were doing and thinking really were, and most importantly, moving past them. Experiments and Experiences There are some aspects of life that thought cannot understand. Thought works by compartmentalizing, creating boundaries, dividing the whole into parts. In order to fully comprehend the meaning before us, we have to go beyond thought. Paul Resendez, The Wild Within We have been trained, programmed, to see the world in pieces. We focus on the details so much that we can miss the big picture. We can overcomplicate the minutiae and underestimate the will, knowledge, and abilities of the world around us. Having arisen from the Dark Ages with the colonizing and world-destroying abilities of the Enlightenment, 
we became enmeshed in our own concepts of truth and crowned our methods of scientific observation, king in the land of the blind automatons. We take away from the world wholesale, and when we give back pieces, it's endemically slow. The point of rewilding is not to adapt our acquired methodology and survive. It is to find, for the sake of sounding like an infomercial guru, the wild within and around us. To break down those barriers that we have installed around us as we emphasize our own uniqueness and specialness. Try as we might to wax elegant upon it, the point is to realize how absolutely stupid some of our pre-existing thoughts, perceptions, and approaches truly are. Fortunately, we have a good and seemingly forgiving teacher, an exceptionally resilient world. The problem is that we learn really, really slow. For biologist Carl Safina, the underlying principle of human progress is an, un- is an expanding circle of compassion. As much respect as I have for him, I think there are times when he, do- he too does a double take on those words. Human progress, or capital P progress as we've come to uphold it, is anything but expanding compassion. If anything, and this is being gracious, there's a trickle of regaining information and understanding that pastoralists and farmers buried alongside the bodies of nomadic hunter-gatherers, and it's a selective trickle at that. It can be painful to read about what is becoming more widely accepted among scientists about animal cognitions at times. Biologist Franz DeWall has led the call for deeper understanding of empathy with other species, but then goes to work for Yerkes Primate Facility every day. How empathic we can be about primate emotions while injecting them with opiates to understand human addictions shouldn't have to be up for debate. I'm absolutely grateful for folks like Safina, psychologist G.A. Bradshaw, and others, even DeWall to degrees, but the upheaval in non-human cognition is old news, not new. We've been trained by the machinists of our epoch to disregard them. Rene Descartes, considered the father of Western philosophy, used the phrase cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, to justify things like public vivisection of dogs without anesthesia. A true psychopath, the dissections were meant to explore our similarities in terms of organs while boasting their inability to speak was because they have no thoughts. Yelping, whining, and cowering, apparently all mechanical functions to a philosopher. Nothing to see here. Try as we might to discount the archaic nature of Descartes, the vivisectors at Yerkes might convince themselves that the use of anesthesia makes a world of difference, but it does not. While a progressive veneer of care exists, we've merely industrialized and modernized our brutality. In spreadsheets, no one can hear them scream. If anything, we've incorporated more cognitive dissonance than most in Descartes' time. The scientific world is barely coming to the terms with the idea that ants organize based on cooperation and are largely self-managed, that the queen holds no authority, and that ant lives are less regimented than factory workers. Even Charles Darwin and his anarchist counterpart, Peter Kropotkin, granted that ants had wants and emotions. Nomadic hunter-gatherers could tell you far more than that. In all regards, our much-reasoned baggage is clearly detrimental towards embracing what it means to be an animal. That much is clear. What is less clear is how much this worldview really gets in the way of our experiences with the world. Lacking a life of integration and context, we're left to figure things out. In an eerily insecure way, that's almost reassuring. When we figure something out or learn some new factoid, we get a little boost of endorphins in our brains. We think it's a discovery. 
like most discoveries, were really just the idiots who had to figure the obvious thing out. We approached the world as we were conditioned to, as individuals. Each of us imbued with a sense of uniqueness. From a wilding perspective, that sounds like isolation. From a civilized perspective, it's supposed to be the sales pitch, and that's one thing that makes civilized humans truly unique, finding value in captive lives. In reality, things are much more complex. I tend to speak of the wild or wildness, but if there's anything either of those terms stands for, an entity they most definitely are not. Wild is no stand-in for God or any other contrived, omniscient hierarchy. It's just a term. The reality is that all life is connected. Carl Safina sums it up well here. Quote, A living thing is a knot of passing time, flowing material, and continuous energy. From dust, air, water, energy assembles itself into the wood, leaves, bone, and muscle that we recognize as living. Our lives depend on how energy pushes matter through plants and animals. Often the matter, like carbon, nitrogen, and water, cycles from one living thing to the next throughout the whole community. We are these dynamic processes in relationship to one another. We are a relationship to the world. End quote. To the point, quote, you're not just an entity, you're an interchange. End quote. Philosophically speaking, that probably works fine on face value, but we aren't speaking philosophically. On a biological timeline, we're speaking in terms of fact. We, however, live in historic time. So getting this through your head isn't really a cognitive issue, it's a pragmatic one. Living in cities, communicating with the world through screens, we just don't engage our senses, at least not without contrived circumstances, manufactured scents, taste panel approved food products, and a consumers of music instead of part of the harmony. These simply reinforce our roles as consumers of products and spectators of the artifacts our unique self acquires and identifies with. Those first years of taking field guides out studiously, they just perpetuated this kind of consumptive scientific minefield. If you reduce the variables and follow the rules, you will find that you are looking you'll find what you're looking for, or you find something and reduce variables until you identify it. And I should clarify, it can be an ugly pri- ugly process from that biological timeline. We didn't survive the ice ages as a species because of books, but it's one we're stuck with since our elders were workers and specialists instead of hunters and gatherers. My point is, whatever gets us out there is just a starting point. It's the first steps you take, not the last. If you look beyond the page and the stats, you find the limitations of your unique slack of flesh don't have such a clean endpoint. In hunting edible mushrooms, I've often found that despite a lot of bright colors, sight alone isn't enough. A lot of mushrooms have very specific scents, like the peppery smell of a chanterelle. Some are great. Others are less pronounced in smell, but more in soil or wood preferences. Get to know them, and you can feel if the soil is too dry or too wet. Some get you on your hands and knees. I've been in spots where I found hundreds and thousands of morels, each one of varying degree of elusive. Ever the excellent guide to the world of wildness, I've also found enough morels under pines to give respect to the ultimate anarchistic fungi. Sometimes you just have to more literally look past the book. As the fruiting body of a network of mycelium, communicative body, networking trees, and cycling nutrients from disturbed soils, the mushroom is perhaps the greatest challenge to the notion of a unique self. I can hold the fruiting body in my own hand, but what that mushroom is extends nearly infinitely beyond that. Forests fall from the cap and propagate. Vast underground networks separate and reconnect. They spread through rotting flesh and trees, redistributing nutrients, feeding off of its expanding reach. 
Cordyceps parasitize insects as they forage and hunt, their bodies becoming the soil from which the next fruiting bodies will grow. Dear Machinist, where doth the parasite end? Hearing discussions about the web of life or the flow of energy, it can sound downright hokey. Every time you use the phrases, another hippie probably jumps in a drum circle. But at a certain point, you run out of terms. More importantly, the terms run out of context. Ecologist Paul Shepard was equally familiar with this problem. Quote, The difficulty is that it is practically impossible to discuss our experience of the non-human without recourse to a jargon that is the property of an outmoded and destructive enterprise. End quote. To be completely reductionist, reality is far more complex than language. Meaning comes from context, and context comes from grounding. Hell, even trying to discuss the web of life requires a web of its own. Am I not being courteous by looking at mushrooms? Fair enough. In the words of master tracker Paul Resendez, in order to embrace the web of life yourself, try tracking an animal. Even more specifically, go try to track a fox. Fox tend to be rightfully skeptical of humans. They've earned that reputation of being tricky not because they're conniving, but because they're smart. Their tracks are notoriously deceptive. It's always great to head out in the snow to track fox, sometimes spending hours on a set of tracks to wind up back where you started without ever seeing more than a few signs that the fox actually accompanied the mysterious tracks. If you're lucky, you'll find signs of a pounce, the snow keeping the shape of a furry snout, a few strays hair left to remind you that it really was there. Once again, you find yourself crawling on hands and knees under brush, walking in tracks so intently laid it's hard not to gain some perspective. Stalking, Resendez reiterates, quote, gives us an opportunity to move away from the tiny perspective of thought and self in an all-encompassing awareness. We are in this awareness we see with the eyes of the whole universe. The tiny perspective of self is put in its place, seen for what it is. It is no longer a frightened little identity hiding in a vast wilderness, end quote. Not to go too far off the deep end, we do exist as individuals. We make decisions. We have impacts. Feeling like the barrier can break down between predator and prey, forager and flora, doesn't mean that we cease to exist. What it means is that I, or whatever I call myself, is the sum of my relationships, experiences, and interactions. I am the sum of the energy that sustains my mind and body. Much like the fruiting body of mycelium, I cannot live without all of that. Bringing it back to Safina, connections make us individuals. And to allow Shepard to take that a step further, quote, Self-consciousness is possible only in a world of others. We are members of a human family and society, but the presence of animal others enlarges our perception of the self beyond the city to the limits of the world, and deeply inward to that ground of being where live the lizard and monkey and fish, end quote. The problem isn't that civilization created self-consciousness, or even the concept of I, it's just that it defines itself in isolation. Domestication seeks to offer the captive a sense of meaning and accomplishment, a pat on the back for what you have done, with no recognition for what got you there. Ever the prophet of the ego, Max Stirner typifies this groundless celebration of the self. Quote, My intercourse with the world, what does it aim at? I want to have the enjoyment of it. Therefore, it must be my property, and therefore, I want to win it. I do not want the liberty of men, nor their equality. I want only my power over them. I want to make them my property material for enjoyment, end quote. Spoiler alert, Sterner died at age 50 after being appropriately stung by a winged insect. And that feeds into this cycle. All this baggage that we carry with us, notions we consider so logical and such a baseline for our interactions that they take active work to realize how untenable they really are. We uphold uniqueness against all of the adaptive and resilient pieces of our minds that formed over millions of years of evolution. Fortunately, it's not a permanent state. 
that doesn't make moving beyond it easier. Realistically, it'll be a matter of generations who know to listen and trust that the connections of all other beings, be it red fox, voles, grasses, or mycelium, are living too. And that's not something they have to philosophize about. What a forest knows. Quote, Killer whales simply seem to specialize in acute consciousness. They don't appear to be astonished by us. They take us matter-of-factly. We don't need to continue being astonished at their behavior. Instead, we might simply fully accept them and be astonished by one thing about ourselves, how long it's taken us. End quote. Carl Safina, Beyond Words. I have a deep love for turkey vultures. All animals have personalities. Plants and trees certainly seem to as well, but I've seen turkey vultures that really seem to have a sense of humor. I see them often, huddling alongside a freshly cut hayfield, as if to discuss what they found left in the tractor's wake. But there are times when you watch them soaring upwards in a wind tunnel, times when it looks more relaxed than others. I can't help but think that it looks like fun. And why wouldn't it be? Walking is a form of transportation, a method of movement. We use it to hunt, forage, play. We make it a little weirder and call it dancing. That's how we get around. And yet there are times when it's fun, or at the very least, soothing. As it should be, nomadism is our bones, literally. We take in the world on two legs, vultures on two wings. You have days where crosswinds look like they could take a vulture out of the sky, and there are days when you've got a bruised heel or sore leg and walking can end up being downright painful. That's hardly the most of the time. That I have to wonder if a tricky vulture enjoys flying comes back to the point here. This is how far we've gone, that we have to prove that animals feel joy, that they communicate, that they understand each other, and that their world doesn't resemble ours, a mechanically operated world of semi-autonomous automatons, the old struggle to survive bit. Mobula rays, a cousin of the mantis ray, leave as much as 10 feet out of the ocean while gathered in the thousands, for weighing upward of a ton or in having a 17-foot wingspan, that's quite a feat. There's speculation about the benefits of it, courtship and parasite removal among them, but they also certainly seem to enjoy it. This hits the core of scientific functionalism. If a biological purpose is discovered, that overrides any emotion, feeling, or personal reaction that any mobula ray, turkey vulture, or human being might actually feel. We become obsessed with explaining the world instead of just accepting that functionality isn't the sole driver for personal behavior. That kind of economic biological theorizing is the kind of burden you shoulder when you're the descendant of agrarian and industrial workers. It's all work or play, and there's no reason to believe that this is how it must be outside of the drudgery of production. Be it a feudal field, a factory, or a desk job, we're the living anomaly. We have the baggage to overcome. The real world, that web of life, it doesn't come in pieces like that. Sounds like a simple realization, until you catch yourself trying to solve things you observe instead of just accept that they are likely are just what they are. I find myself doing that constantly. The situations that we've created because of civilization require that kind of problem-solving approach. There's a degree of maliciousness and deceit that we just accept, but on a social level, that doesn't exist anywhere else in life. Of course animals act with intention. Most of us prey upon others, but outside of play and occasionally sneaking an extra piece of fruit here or there, intents are obvious. We set ourselves up for failure here because we live in such a scale and use technology to impact so much life that we have a physical distance to match our social and psychological ones. We overly on language spoken or written to convey everything. We pride ourselves on it. We act like developing this one form of interaction over the others grants us some kind of ingenuity. Really all it does is make it possible to lie and be lied to easier. We have all the senses, and we largely ignore them. Body language will tell you more than words will about intent, but we take that out of the equation. 
so it becomes surprising to us to learn about things like interspecies communication. Given our background and context, why shouldn't it be? But given our biology, this is what we should know, and it starts with the birds. Speaking of bird communication, naturalist John Young points out that there is nothing random about birds' awareness and behavior, drawing that out further. Quote, The animals know that the importance of this language, they listen to it. This is how they learn about us, and the birds' alarms give them so much advance warning about our approach that they can choose the manner and timing of their own retiring departure. Only rarely do they actually have to run away. End quote. This is something we all experience. Whether we notice it or not is another thing. You walk into a forest and songbirds go higher up into the trees and make an audibly alarming call. Not shockingly, that's an alarm call. And the alarm is often about you, the aloof human, the being that forgets it too is an animal. Our energy radiates and our stress is apparent. Seen from another side, you likely caused a pattern of evasion called the bird plow. Basically, it's all the birds fleeing. Everything else in the forest, fields, or marshes takes note immediately. It's such a predictable pattern to observe that by watching for it, Native American scouts could pinpoint the location of invading cavalry troops from two miles away. We may not be paying attention, but the rest of the wild world sees that lack of interaction as cause for alarm, and they pay attention. Elephants in Kenya can distinguish Maasai languages from all others. Maasai will hunt elephants so they know to act. Upon hearing Maasai voices, the sound of the cowbells the Maasai put on their cattle or the sight of Maasai garments, Elephants were observed having moved closer, then turned and retreated, usually by running, up to 300 yards away, where they would clump together closely, with their young protected at the center of the family group. Normalcy returns in our wake, when the rest of this actually connected world realizes that the human intruders are predictably not paying attention to them, and things go back to stasis. Our behavior becomes predictable, and animals will even take advantage of it. I recently caught a sharpshin hawk hunting in the wake of disturbance caused by my car as I drove through the National Forest. It's not uncommon to see hawks, eagles, or herons hunting in plain sight around humans, only taking to flight immediately when they can tell that they've been spotted directly. For them, our direct attention is abnormal behavior for how they understand us. That's not meant to be taken as a positive critique of our ways. What this means is that we have to get past ourselves. It means that acting with awareness and attention. There's no shortcut here. There's no end point to this process, but it begins with confronting what we don't know, with seeing what we aren't visualizing. At a certain point, we have to trust in the honesty of the wild. Then we can start picking up the cues. And here, even science is starting to catch up a bit. German forester and ecologist Peter Walden drew out the interrelationship of forest in his recent book, The Hidden Life of Trees. Life beneath the forest floor is a series of interconnected root structures. Trees of families and can distinguish the roots of relatives from those that aren't. Mycelium interlaced between those root systems, sending communication, nutrients, and nurturing between trees. The forests, as Wolven states, are superorganisms with interconnections much like ant colonies. So if the terms I'm using here make you uncomfortable, there's the science to back it up. This web, this network and community of the wild, isn't proverbial. It's physical. It is there. And, by and large, it functions as a whole. Messages are passed and acted upon. Intents are fairly clear. It doesn't need to be a peaceable kingdom or whatever garbage religious notion we might have of heaven. It just works well this way. Of course, we can make it harder to see this because we surround ourselves with domesticated plants and animals. These are beings that have been bred for performance in artificially structured reality. This isn't to say that wildness is completely gone from them, just more subdued and circumstantially denied. They too are stunted in their development. 
they too aren't seeing the kind of communication and networking that is being talked about here in healthy forests, as Wolven explains it. Quote, In the symbiotic community of the forest, not only trees, but also shrubs and grasses, and possibly all plant species, exchange information this way. However, when we step into the farm fields, the vegetation becomes very quiet. Thanks to selective breeding, our cultivated plants have, for the most part, lost their ability to communicate above or below ground. You could say they are deaf and dumb. End quote. Planted forests lack these familiar relationships. The trees bred and raised in orchards and nurseries. The mechanics of planting also haunt these trees for the rest of their lives. The trees that line fields and city streets, raised without community, become the kind of street kids of their species. Trying to figure it out on their own and left for decades without other trees for the roots to connect with. It's easy to make the allegory with our own lives here. We suffer the same, period, end stop. But there's more to it. This is what we're missing out on. It's a glimpse of what we, as a species, have evolved to take part in. It's that part of each of us that is constantly trying to fill with some new thing, some new habit. For science writer Virginia Morell, that realization came amongst a room full of laughing rats. For her, quote, if there was a moment that encapsulated all that we don't know or miss about our animals, for me, this was surely it, end quote. What we are missing from our own lives and from the lives of everything that surrounds us is, quite frankly, depressing. There have been times where these kinds of obvious realizations were almost just upsetting to me. All the how-did-I-not-know-this-already moments. Missing out on this is a pretty horrible feeling, even if it's ultimately something we can't overcome. However, when that missing out translates into not seeing what our indifference is causing, that is tragic. What we have done, quote, Just as humans have a history of their relations with animals, so also animals have a history of their relations with humans, end quote. Tim Ingold, Perceptions of the Environment. There's a sense of awe that floods in when you hear it. A few quick yips, perhaps some barks, quickly erupting into a symphony of howls and yipping that seems to draw out voices all around you. The hills come alive, in this case, quite literally. This is the sound of coyotes howling, and it goes quickly. Sometimes it will happen multiple times per night, other times more sporadic. The speed and intensity, each coyote capable of sounding like a dozen at a time, can itself be humbling. It has a way of stilling all other life at the moment. And for us, it should. Coyotes are a lot like us. Where we cross paths, there's significant comparison. Like us, coyotes are social animals. They're adaptive and resilient in the same way as we are. During the last ice age, much like us, they flowed easily between hunting and scavenging and foraging. They have societies built around fission and fusion, meaning they move between solitary and group life as circumstances demand it. Once again, much like nomadic hunter-gatherer bands. When we, where we separate, on the other hand, is nothing short of horrifying. There are two confirmed incidents of coyotes killing humans. Whether these were coyote-dog hybrids responsible for the kills is in dispute. Not in dispute is the complete war that civilization has waged on all things wild, and predators bear the worst of it. As Dan Flores puts it in his excellent book, Coyote America, quote, Coyotes still do one thing more than anything else. Die, at a rate unmatched by any other large animal. The best guess is that altogether we kill about 500,000 of them a year, roughly once every minute. About the time it takes to read this page, someone, somewhere, is ending the life of a coyote. End quote. Even among contemporary ranchers, coyotes are considered a parasite of civilization. The kind of sentiment only a farmer can utter without a drop of self-awareness. With religious fervor and colonial gusto, the conquistadors, the farmers, the corporations, and politicians sought to eradicate life in the New World as quickly as they could. 
completely oblivious to the implications that might arise, the goal with control. The coyote is an exemplary here in their targeting. Bison, wolves, pumas, and numerous others had an immediate target on their back. Either a potential source of food for the native populations, the colonizing forces sought to eliminate or to bring into civilization, or just a semblance of a functioning world, there was no room for competition. Unlike the passenger pigeons, puffins, and whales, killed by the consumer's indifference and an orgy of take-everything, the level of plotting and planning that went into and continues to go into this war on predators is terrifying. The means of eradication, including sniping predators, including aerial hunts. But if you want to take out a species, shooting is hardly the most efficient means. Poisoning is. That the term predicides exist causes my blood to boil. The kind of results you get when searching it on the internet can result in blind rage. I don't recommend it, but I do encourage it. This has meant putting deadly poisonous canisters on the collars of sheep, placed exactly where wolves, coyotes, and mountain lions are going to bite. It has also manifested in lacing animal carcasses with poison for would-be scavengers. Ever the observant ones, coyotes quickly caught on to the fast-acting lethality of strychnine. The propagators of ecocide proved industrious, opting for slower and far more agonizing poisons. All of this left a legacy that ravens still carry the memory of, even if we've chosen to forget it. As Carl Safina writes, quote, Wolf kills attract ravens by the dozen, yet if humans put out an elk carcass, ravens generally ignore them. Ravens trust wolves. Ravens don't trust humans. The memory of poisoned carcasses must still be a lesson in the raven's educational curriculum. End quote. Where the coyote stands out is its resilience. Fission fusion has allowed adoptive responses to what can only be called genocidal campaigns. That symphonic howl is a check-in. They know whom they are hearing even if the multiple voices were meant to conceal their vital statistics from predators. In this case, that means us. Despite what we have thrown at coyotes, they persevere. Flores elaborates, quote, With beta females breeding, fission fusion has it in high gear, large litter, and more surviving pups. Even reducing the total population of coyotes in a given area by 70%, not just once, but year after year, produced no appreciable effect on coyote population density. End quote. Despite being endlessly impressive and inspiring, coyotes, like all wild beings, haven't gone unscathed. G.A. Bradshaw first diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, in captive elephant populations. Young bulls brought to sanctuaries were usually found surrounded by their family members, having been slaughtered by poachers for their ivory, emaciated alone and often in shock. Being handled by humans, even with good intentions, doesn't mitigate the consequences of their capture and relocation. Perhaps there's part of us that simply wants to believe that animals are automatons because we fear being judged. Having sat with a mother doe as she bled out with four broken legs while her fawns watched frantically at a distance, I understand the want. But the reality is there. Wild populations don't just know what is happening. They too have to live with it. These are the consequences of civilization. And the, fur the further you step outside of your own captive comforts, the more you come face to face with this. This is where your brain begins to pull back. This is why rewilding is a process. If we could truly feel the impacts that we have on this world, not a single one of us would be able to step foot into a car, handle a machine, or go back to work again. That would be it. Even without knowing it, this is what is happening to many of us. Unable to cope with the reality of civilized life, mental illness is constantly on the rise. Suicide is a particularly civilized phenomenon, much like mass shootings, yet we simply accept them as the rates climb. Ignoring the root causes of our depression and anxiety might be a luxury that we can bask in, but it is not a reality that we can avoid. Bradshaw didn't stop with elephants. 
Her understanding of PTSD in wild and captive populations spread through the mammalian world and then beyond. All captive-held wildlife, she writes, who by definition are denied normative social interactions and the expanse of natural habitats, live lives of profound, depri- profound deprivation. Even if our capacity is largely social in nature, that still includes us. We break that barrier mentally when we break it physically, and it's unfortunate to even have to say that. It shouldn't have to take likeness for onlookers to know a dog was in pain while the cart was publicly butchering it. Just the same, we should know that sticking an orca, a being that communicates over unimaginable distances through sonar, alone in a concrete pool for entertainment, is just wrong on every level. We don't deserve to be shocked when a captive orca breaks everything about how orcas and humans have interacted for potentially all of our seafaring past to kill a trainer at SeaWorld. We broke that animal, not vice versa. We do this by giving the wild credit for what it is or potentially might be. We use our own miserable lives as a measure of worth. It's a punchline without a joke, quoting Safina again. We impose a self-isolation that deprives ourselves experiencing so much of the world's persona. We truly have kept our deified pride of knowledge from us really understanding anything. Until recently, scientists thought turtles were deaf. Meanwhile, river turtles use up to 11 different calls to guide their hatchlings towards them. There's a path back to this knowledge, this experience. It can be ugly. Even at its best, it's difficult not to stumble into walls that you didn't know were even there. When you start forcing situations where you have to actively get beyond yourself, this reality only becomes more apparent. We stop being the center of the universe. We can find comfort in being a small part of something unthinkably vast instead of the isolation of numbers that permeate civilized life. Living doesn't require a solution to all of life's problems, and understanding based on respect is far more functional. Blundering down that path, it becomes impossible to not be confronted by the fact that the veneer of isolation as hubris we have built around ourselves isn't protecting us. It is mutually suffocating for ourselves and for the others. There is a flow, a rhythm, which surrounds us. And that is where ideas about supremacy and delusions of control go to die. The Nature of Stability versus Stagnancy Quote, All organic exchanges are movement. They are in flux. All happen together in the now. Thought divides that movement up into the past, present, and future, thus creating the idea of time. But the past and the future are happening in the present. End quote. Paul Resendez, The Wild Within. The most impressive morels I've ever found were surrounding dead or dying elms. Typically reaching over a foot in length, they too can find a way of camouflaging into the floor's floor. When you find one of these spots, it's worth keeping to yourself. But they're also fleeting. I found these spots and gathered morels from them for a year, sometimes two, a couple of times three, but that's it. The ecology behind these monster mushrooms is transitory. Unfortunately, that doesn't quite cut it. It's beyond disappointing to find a spot like that only to hit it in the last year when the drying tree was going to feed into whatever precious equation that yields a towering and delicious fruiting body. This, however, is just the way it goes. There's a lot of armchair confusion about the nature of ecology. The idea that stasis and ecological stability lie in repeatability, in a word, stagnancy. I see that as a nod to the agrarian idealists believing that their domineering mimicry of biological cycles is a substitute for the real deal. As we've seen, maybe it's not their fault since they're dealing with the debilitated plants and soil in the first place. Farmers need an untenable level of control. What distinguishes horticulture, or forest gardening of sorts, from agriculture is the manipulation of waterways, and that happens because their typically weeded and plotted rows of crops require inputs where natural cycles would have previously done the heavy lifting. 
Fertilizers, earth movers, moisture, and soil enhancement don't come naturally in the field or the garden that just apply agricultural techniques on a micro scale. There's a direct correlation in the history of civilization between the size of a society and the shrinking number of resources it becomes reliant upon. Nomadic hunter gatherers the epitome of resiliency. Their diet varies based on ecological patterns that include droughts, famines, and periods of flooding. Some animals adapt better than others, and we have the ability to hunt them. A wild diet is filled with options. A grocery store mostly centers around variations on about a dozen cash crops and bastardized processed traditions of them. Then add in stabilizers, supplemental nutrients, and of course, lots and lots of sugar. When you shrink your world to that few resources, it takes a whole other world of resources from oil to water, but mostly oil and water, to sustain a precious equation that artificially favors their growth. Again, it would be a good allegory for civilization, but it is literally the basis of civilization. Being a fan of options, I'm also a fan of wild mushrooms. Some primitive skills gurus have apparently discouraged mushroom hunting and identification in true survivalist terms as a caloric sinkhole, effectively that it takes too much work finding them for the amount of energy you get back. Not only is that wrong, it's just plain stupid. Some of that bias is based off of conventional white mushrooms, and if those were an indicator for not just some mushrooms, but an entire category of flora, then we might as well just say that the meat you get from wild herds of bison is roughly the same in terms of quality, nutrition, and sustenance as factory farmed and grain-fattened beef. The only person willing to feed you that line is the person who is making profit off of feedlot beef. Fortunately for those interested in rewilding and skilling or just experiencing the wild, we don't require biological justifications for every ounce of energy used. I hunt mushrooms because I like it, and I'm not alone here. Carrying the bias against mushrooms, a lot of anthropologists seemingly never even recorded them as a source of food. Anthropologist Kevin Duffy, however, paid attention. Living amongst the nomadic hunting and gathering Mabuti, he noted that they ate mushrooms nearly constantly, hardly considered a miracle without them. It helps that mushrooms are intensely important in terms of nutrients and medicinal properties. By and large, they're vastly vital for ecological stability. More importantly for us, they're incredibly important for ecological recovery through bioremediation. And honey mushrooms are no exception. Honey mushroom is actually an umbrella term for a group of similar mushrooms that grow over much of the world, but they're close enough that one bandage label seems to work out all right. In terms of medicinal properties, they're antibacterial, increase blood flow, prevent respiratory and digestive tract conditions, and can offer an analgesic effect if needed. Though we have much to learn about all mushrooms, we do know that honeys have a symbiotic relationship with orchids in Asia. This is equally likely to be true everywhere else they grow. They also taste pretty damn good when fried. Gardeners hate them. Even while being poetic about the role of mushrooms for networking with trees, Wilbin, our forester expert, claims, quote, None of the seven honey fungus mushrooms native to Central Europe do trees any good, end quote. Horticultural web forums lament personal battles with what they consider a disease, noting, discouraging, discouragingly, I might add, that the tough rhizomes of honeys make chemical fungicides largely ineffective. Commercial operations are advised to sterilize soil. Gardeners are advised to clear everything out around the fungus to keep it from spreading. So who is this devilish fungus, this great destroyer? Turns out they're some of the oldest and largest living organisms in the entire world. In Michigan, a single honey mushroom rhizome was found over cover 37 acres. Weighing at least 50 tons, it is estimated to be about 1,500 years old. A couple years later, that find was overshadowed by another rhizome in Oregon. 
this time covering 2,400 acres, likely to be 2,200 years old. If I had to wager what constitutes a pest in the wild, I take the wisdom of the oldest and largest living organism over gardeners and forest managers. The problem here is that honey mushrooms are a parasite, and in our fairly restricted and loaded view of the world, parasites take. Ecologically speaking, they give too, but if stagnancy we, spe- we seek, a stasis that incorporates change we must fear. In reality, the honey mushroom is a habitat creator, and one that seemingly gets little credit. If mushrooms have a support network, Paul Stametz leads the charge. According to him, honey mushrooms, quote, will attack a tree, causing devastating root rot and hollow brown core rot. As the diseased trees in the forest die, the wood dries and may catch fire if struck by lightning, especially if located on ridgetops. The forest fire often cauterizes the soil, killing the amarilla that originally killed the forest. The result may be high mountain meadows inhabited by grass until a new forest regenerates. Fires often help create meadows which, due to their low wood content, provide fire breaks and forest disease-free zones. The cycle of forest to meadow to forest may be healthier for the ecosystem in the long run because with each succession, the soil biosphere is enriched as soils thicken, end quote. Wolven would be among the foresters that Stamets credits with acknowledging that a rotting tree in the midst of a canopied forest is, in fact, more supportive of biodiversity than a living tree. For some reason, according to Wolven, when a mushroom uses that rot to propagate itself, it hasn't yet proven its do-good to him. As Stamets elaborates, honey mushrooms parasitize trees with some degree of damage, leaving the stronger plants alone. Garden varieties would rarely pass the bar, so it's not shocking that gardeners hate the fungus. Ultimately, Stamets writes, Parasitic mushrooms set the stage for the revival of weakened habitats that are too stressed to thrive. I'm reminded of one of Paul Resendez's recurring points, how abstracted and disconnected thoughts, just being lost in our own logical reinterpretation of the world, keeps us from accepting and connecting with the world on its own terms. Quote, Thought has taken over our lives in more ways than we can even begin to imagine. In order for awareness to enter our lives, we need to understand how thought envelops us, permeates us, and controls us. End quote. It's a reminder that sometimes the most illogical thing is a common-sense reality. It's just a matter of expanding our scale and perceptions beyond ourselves. It's a reminder of the importance of context. Looked at from that larger, wider, and deeper perspective, the more we see that context, the more we begin to see ourselves within it. From observation to integration. Quote, Knowledge of the world is gained by moving about in it, exploring it, attending to it, ever alert to the signs by which it is revealed, Learning to see, then, it is a matter of not acquiring schemata for mentally constructing the environment, but acquiring the skills for direct perpetual engagement with its constituents, human and non-human, animate and inanimate, Tim Ingold, Perceptions of the Environment. The world is a fairly forgiving place. Unlike the technosphere we have isolated ourselves in, there aren't nearly as many circumstances presented in the wild that are likely to prove themselves fatal. And people do die in the wild from falling out of trees, yet, much like the incredibly low rates of being preyed upon by the predators, this is an exceptionally low probability. But the chances of dying in civilization from car accidents, drug overdose, fatal medical errors, preventable diet-related illness, suicide, homicide, or any other illnesses that come along with industrial pollution and proximity with domesticated animals are perpetually creeping up. What we give up is in exchange for the illusion of control. We accept the possibility of being killed, wounded, or debilitated by cars, yet we believe that we could choose our role in an unspoken social contract just by being in or around them. As G.A. Bradshaw reminds us, 
We are capable of understanding carnivores and other potential predators if we just gave them the benefit of the doubt and learned to understand them as a species or as individuals. That's largely not true for technology. Things go wrong constantly, and our degree of control is largely negligible. Technology gives us the weaponry to create unforeseen and often unpredicted consequences for our actions. It feeds a disconnect that washes our hands of responsibility for what we do and our own complicity within civilization. In the wild, removed with such distractions, the physical and psychological barrier is suffocated in what can often feel like an air of vulnerability. When we outfit ourselves with gadgetry and artifacts of mass production, we're giving ourselves a survivalist lifeline to civilization. If you can move past them, then you can laugh at some of the growing pains along the way. But rest assured, we've had so many layers of domesticated vision put upon us that this journey isn't likely to end in our lifetimes. And as nomadic hunter-gatherers would remind us, if we simply paid attention, laughing at yourself is a pretty vital skill, potentially even more important than the ability to create an impressive collection of primitive tools. Replacing our obsession of consumable material goods with wild-crafted ones might improve your skills without ever checking your survivalist habits at the door. The path to wildness requires shutting up and allowing yourself to be shut up. Sometimes you just have to stop and listen. Pay attention to the alarms, the calls, the signs, and the behaviors. That's especially true when you are the source of them. The connections become apparent beyond thought. The process of peeling back begins, one stupid preconceived notion at a time, unraveling our lifelines to the iron lung. Observation is a vital step. But observation alone doesn't take away our status and stasis as spectators of life rather than as actors within it. Rewilding is about moving beyond observation into integration. The backpacker and birdwatcher are intent on leaving only footprints. Rewilding is about leaving yourself behind. To learn and understand the larger, wild context so that we may become a part of it. For John Young, bird language is an entry point. Quote, when we train ourselves to listen to the birds with every synapse of our brains, or so it may seem, when we lose our mind and come to our senses in the fullest possible way, the chattering, texting, emailing, twittering mind will eventually quiet down and almost silence itself. This is a sacred and connected silence, and within this zone, we can choose to turn on the conscious thoughts or leave them off. I believe this is the baseline for human consciousness, and I'm convinced that the birds are the best mentors in the natural world for bringing us to it. End quote. And you might be looking at all this and reading it as more conjecture about some new age or hippie poetics over perceived relationships when really it is all just matter and nothing more. You might be asking yourself what the point of any of this is. If you believe the domesticated commandments that all experience is a subjective construction of our individual lives and there are no universals or buy into the mythos of human uniqueness, a legend backed either by fantastic gods or lifeless sciences, then all this likely means nothing to you. In a way, that's my point. I'm not interested in selling you on any of this as a consumable identity or a philosophical platform. What I'm talking about here is myself lamenting the limitations imposed on us by language. It's about the battles that I have faced when challenging the traps we present ourselves with through survivalist conventions. Escaping the tendencies of seeing the world as something to solve, a place where myself exists. That circumstance is a historical creation, one tied equally to the fate and destiny that awaits any civilization and that circumstance, too, will collapse. Ecologically and biologically speaking, civilization rose because a tiny handful of humans slowly drifted into a position where our resiliency turned against us. Building settlements around bumper crops of wild grains during periods of ecological shifting may have been a series of non-events until those camps turned into sedentary societies. 
a shift occurring as those wild harvests turned into agricultural yields. The reality is that the Holocene created a level of stability and predictability that made agriculture possible, and climate change seems to quickly undo that. We have evidence within the living history of our bodies and minds that we are capable of the resilience it takes to shift back out of this, and in so doing, we face the potential that we may one day break out of the survivalist mentality altogether and actually live to experience community and a comfort in ecological stasis where flux and flex are the norms. I can put into words points in my life where I've stumbled, but it's harder to put into words points where I have not. Moments that exist beyond description, or at least risk the chance of feeling like those moments were profane through attempting to transcribe them. But they too are a part of this journey. Moments of communicating with another species. Periods of receiving discomforting word that comes with a feeling of being a part of something rather than alone. Or just times when you're swimming in rivers with friends, knocking each other off boulders with mud balls surrounded by a seemingly unending forest of wild edibles, and, if only for a moment, you catch a glimpse of how we were meant to live. We evolved to be nomadic hunter-gatherers. Everything our brains and hearts yearn for exists within that way of living, that way of interacting with the world. And yet we are stuck within patterns where each part of our being and all of our wants and needs are distorted, torn apart, repackaged, and sold back to us through the process of domestication. It is killing us. It is killing our world. It keeps us separated, trying to pull together some semblance of worth and isolation. At a certain point, the unsustainable nature of that world becomes a cold, hard reality. Most likely, all of us and our children will have to face that. What I'm saying is that we don't have to wait. This is accessible to all of us. Wildness knows no boundaries. It is a world that we have suppressed with pesticides, predicides, and homicides, but it never gives up. It is strong. It is resilient yet it remains under attack. The veneer of control that we grasp desperately to seeks to bleed everything from this world. It would gladly continue beyond if it could. We become numb to it. We accept that drive. We reach for the reassuring impulses because they're the only ones we are trained to acknowledge. From that vantage point, everything has a logical argument for why it exists. There are moral, ethical, and rational arguments to justify why we do what we do. From the vantage point of having your precious reasoned arguments and categories thrown back in your face, grounding exists beyond reason, logic, and morality. What we are doing to this planet and the communities that embody it is wrong. When you feel that pain, when you glimpse at what is being taken from us, taken from the others, robbed from a living history that is yet to transpire, there is no question about what is to be done. There is no moral code, no list of commandments, no 10-step plan, only resolve. When we become context, as we fumble through shedding our layers, we find a primal beating piece of ourselves that has been seething all along. That part of your mind that whispers to you at night about feeling like everything is wrong. That part of your heart that won't calm down as you try to distract yourself back into your comfort zone at night. Deep down, like any other captive animal pacing in its cage, we know this isn't right. We have to acknowledge that we are the perpetuators. It is a common misconception that the purpose of the anarcho-primitive critique of civilization is that we will one day become nomadic hunter-gatherers. The purpose is to show you that we always have been one. We've just been too conditioned otherwise to survive as captives. And ultimately, that too is a choice.